As a cover to conduct his bootlegging business, Maranzano set up a company in Little Italy that supposedly was involved in export and import trade. There was a harsher side to Maranzano's business and personality that he revealed in a monologue to young Bonanno. He cautioned his protege that hunting animals was relatively simple, but taking the life of another man demanded courage and caution. When you aim at a man, your hands shake, your eyes twitch, your heart flutters, your mind interferes, Bonanno recalled Maranzano advising him. If possible, you should always touch the body with your gun to make sure the man is dead. Man is the hardest animal to kill. If he gets away, he will come back to kill you. Those words soon proved to be prophetic. In 1930, other members of the Castella Maresi Borganda turned to Maranzano for guidance and leadership when Masseria demanded $10,000 payoffs as tributes, recognizing his assumed position as Joe the Boss of all New York mafiosi. Masseria also began dispatching hitmen against recalcitrant Castellamarese soldiers. The firebrand Maranzano refused to submit to Masseria or acknowledge his supremacy, thereby igniting an unprecedented large-scale conflict between the area's two largest borgatas. As casualties mounted, each side sought reinforcements from the other New York gangs and from mafiosi in other cities. In the Sicilian-Italian underworld, the mob carnage was spoken of as the Castellamarese War. Aware that they were prime ambush targets, Masseria and Maranzano surrounded themselves with bodyguards. Traveling around town in convoys of armor-plated cars, Maranzano relied on a custom-built Cadillac with metal-plated sides and bulletproof windows. He shared the rear seat with a machine gun mounted on a swivel to fire out the windows. For backup weapons in close combat, he carried two large-caliber handguns and a dagger. Although he worked as a top lieutenant for Masseria, 29-year-old Lucky Luciano worried that the shootouts, with cadavers and wounded men sprawled on streets, attracted unwelcome notoriety to the Borgata gangs. Even worse, the fighting compelled the police to launch investigations that could endanger the smooth stream of loot flowing to him and his pals. From the start, Luciano had opposed the tyrannical thrust for absolute control and power by Joe the Boss, fearing that it would end in death and chaos for the main participants. Before the war broke out, Luciano had become increasingly frustrated by Masseria's refusal to adopt his ideas for modernizing and expanding their rackets. Content with the easy money from bootlegging and protection shakedowns, Masseria brushed off Luciano's proposals to cash in on new ventures. Luciano's business ideas included streamlining international bootlegging by cooperating with other Italian and with non-Italian gangs to bring in greater quantities of booze and eliminate hijackings. He knew that such cooperation would also prevent interference from the law by guaranteeing that more law enforcement personnel would be adequately bribed. Additionally, Luciano wanted to expand the areas of labor racketeering, gambling, and prostitution. Many of these activities would require temporary or permanent partnerships with Jewish and Irish gangsters. The distrustful Masseria 
reluctant to accept alliances, even with rival Sicilian and Italian mobsters whom he knew, vetoed any deals with Jewish or Irish hoods. Representing an emerging generation of English-speaking mafiosi who had been raised in America, Luciano grew increasingly contemptuous of the erratic, archaic methods of Masseria and his older immigrant counterparts. Luciano and his closest confederates referred disparagingly to Masseria and his ilk as mustache peats and greasers. After 18 months of combat and with no end in sight to the Castellamarese War, Luciano intervened by double-crossing Masseria. According to Joe Bonanno, who served as Maranzano's wartime chief of staff, at a clandestine meeting with Maranzano, Luciano offered to halt the hostilities by eliminating Masseria and assuming control of the dead boss's gang. In exchange, Maranzano would call off his hitmen, recognize Luciano as an equivalent boss, and peace would reign between the two factions. Armed with the secret pact, Luciano moved swiftly. He set up Masseria, inviting him to Coney Island for a lavish lobster lunch, a card game, and a conference at one of Joe the Boss's favorite trotterias, the Nuovo Villa Tamaro, where he would feel safe. The meeting on April 15, 1931, was ostensibly to find a way to ambush Maranzano. Masseria drove to the luncheon date in his personal armored car with one-inch-thick bulletproof windows and with three bodyguards. Before dessert arrived, Luciano left for the toilet. Mysteriously, Masseria's bodyguards vanished from the restaurant as four of Luciano's killers suddenly appeared and riddled Joe the Boss with a volley of gunfire. The New York Daily News reported, with melodramatic exaggeration, that Masseria died with the ace of spades, the death card, clutched in a bejeweled paw. Picked up for questioning by detectives, Luciano could offer no theory about a motive for the murder. Unfortunately, he added, he had no clue about the gunman because he was washing his hands and had seen nothing. With Masseria out of the way, Maranzano was hailed as a conquering hero by the surviving Castellamarese clan. Luciano got his reward by taking over Masseria's large gang, and Maranzano gave his blessings to new leaders of three smaller borgatas, whom he considered trustworthy allies. Maranzano, however, had a surprise in store for Luciano. Signaling his presumed dominance, Maranzano summoned Chicago's Al Capone and mafia leaders from the rest of the country to a meeting in a resort hotel in tiny Wappingers Falls, 75 miles from Times Square, to inform them of New York's new power lineup. The major implication of the meeting was clear. Mananzano had crowned himself as the highest-ranked leader in New York, and because of the city's prominence as the Mafia's emerging American pole star, he expected to be recognized as superior to all bosses in the country. Mananzano, in effect, had declared himself capo di tutti capi, boss of bosses. In New York, he began issuing organizational decrees to the Castellamarese Mafiosi, and to the other Borgatas. Recalling his admiration for Caesar, he wanted the families modeled loosely on the military chain of command of a Roman legion. Towering above all others, a father or boss, 
or representante, would govern with unquestioned authority. His main assistant, or executive officer, was the sottocapo, underboss. Crews or street units, decini, would be formed, consisting of ten or more inducted soldiers or button men. Each crew would be led by a capo decina, capo, or captain, appointed by the boss. And the units would be the family's workhorses for all illegal operations. Maranzano further mandated that mafia rules, which were inviolable in Sicily, be imposed on all the New York clans. His fundamental precepts, all carrying the death penalty if ignored, were unquestioned obedience to the father or boss and his designated officers. No physical assaults or insults against a fellow mafioso, a ban on desiring or courting the wife or sweetheart of another mafioso, and most important, obeying Omerta, the code of secrecy. Mananzano's high-handed moves provoked Luciano, who now reassessed him as more backward in his thinking than Masseria had been. Not only had Maranzano reneged on their deal for equality in New York, but he was thirsting for power throughout the country. From his trusted crony, Tommy Three-Finger Brown Lucchese, Luciano got wind of more alarming news. The duplicitous Lucchese had cozied up to Maranzano and his top lieutenants and learned that Maranzano had marked Luciano for a machine gun assassination by the Irish cutthroat Vincent Mad Dog Cole, befitting his new grandeur. Maranzano had moved his headquarters from Little Italy to an elegant suite of offices in the building atop Grand Central Terminal. Lucchese's spies tipped off Luciano that Maranzano was having tax troubles and expected that his phony export-import business records would be scrutinized by the Internal Revenue Service. In anticipation of an audit, Maranzano had instructed his bodyguards to be unarmed while in his office to ensure there would be no arrests for gun violations. Acting quickly to catch Maranzano off guard, Luciano decided that the Grand Central Office would be his best chance. On September 10, 1931, Lucchese showed up unannounced at the office for a courtesy call on Maranzano. Minutes later, a group of men swept in, announcing they were IRS agents. None appeared to be Sicilian or Italian and neither Maranzano nor his bodyguards suspected they were hired killers. Before the bodyguards could react, the hitmen got the drop on them, and at gunpoint lined them up along with Lucchese and a female secretary, with their faces pressed to the wall. Lucchese identified Maranzano with a head movement, and a gunman nudged Maranzano into his private office. There were sounds of a struggle followed by a barrage of gunfire. Five months after his arch-foe, Joe the Boss, had been annihilated, Maranzano lay dead, his body torn by bullets and knife wounds. Organized crime historians are uncertain if Luciano had schemed from the start to remove both Basaria and Maranzano as dinosaurs. Antiquated obstacles to the Mafia's progress and realignment. A thin, slightly built, dark-haired man with an impassive, pockmarked face. Luciano came to New York as a boy of nine from a village near Palermo. A school dropout at 14, within a decade, he compiled an arrest record for armed robbery, gun possession, assault, grand larceny, gambling, 
and possession of narcotics. Remarkably, most of the charges were dropped, and except for an eight-month sentence, Luciano avoided any long jail time. A prison psychiatrist aptly analyzed him as highly intelligent, but an aggressive, egocentric, antisocial type. As a teenager, Luciano held only one honest job as a $5 a week shipping clerk in a hat factory. He quit the day after he won $244 in a dice game, but used his experience at the factory to hide heroin that he transported and sold in hat boxes. At age 18, he admitted to a probation officer that he found regular work unsuitable for his personality. I never was a crumb, and if I had to be a crumb, I would rather be dead, he told the interviewing officer. In Lucky's lexicon, a crumb was an average person who slaved at a dull or laborious job, squirreled away money, and never indulged in extravagant pleasures. By the time he was in his 20s, Luciano had been tagged with the nickname Lucky, but it is unclear whether he acquired it for his gambling exploits, or surviving gun and knife attacks, or from American mispronunciations of his Italian surname. His closest call came in 1929, when he was abducted, beaten, and strung up by his hands from a beam in a Staten Island warehouse. True to his calling, Luciano refused to tell the police who had taken him for a ride, and the reason for it. The episode left a jagged scar on his chin. On the Lower East Side, as a wild teenager before joining Masaria's gang, Luciano cemented alliances with Jewish gangsters that would endure for a lifetime. Charlie Lucky's closest Jewish criminal companions were the shrewd Meyer Lansky and Lansky's volatile colleague, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. There was little doubt among New York's mafiosi that Luciano had engineered Maranzano's murder and that the hit team had been mustered by his Jewish confederates. Luciano, however, circulated the message that he had indisputable evidence that the power-mad Maranzano, without cause, had been preparing to kill him, and therefore, the hit was justifiable under Mafia rules. The Castellamarese clan presented the only danger to Luciano of a new war, or an assassination attempt to avenge their chief's death. But Luciano's self-defense claim was readily accepted, even by Maranzano's staunchest protege, Joe Bonanno. Reflecting on Maranzano's imperious behavior after winning a brutal struggle, Bonanno decided that his patron had been an astute warlord, but unable to adapt to the culture and tactics of the new Americanized breed. Despite six years in America, Maranzano spoke little English and was unable to communicate with younger criminals or comprehend their street talk slang. Maranzano was old-world Sicilian in temperament and style, Bonanno explained in his autobiography. But he didn't live in Sicily anymore. In New York, he was advisor not only to Sicilians, but to American Italians. Set for anointment as head of the Castellamarese Borgata, Bonanno saw the wisdom of Luciano's new look for the Mafia and accepted what he characterized as the path of peace. With the war between them over, Luciano and Bonanno held a conclave with the heads of three other substantial borgatas in New York, whom Luciano considered agreeable to his plans. The other bosses were Gaetano Galliano, 
Vincent Mangano and Joe Profaci, without any specific blueprint, in 1931, five mafia families had evolved from a convulsive decade. The five families would survive under various names and leaders into the next century. No other American city would have more than one mafia family, nor would any other borgata come close to matching the size, wealth, power, and influence of any of the New York families. Before the year ended, the New York bosses traveled to Chicago for a national conference with Al Capone, Chicago's Italian mob titan, and the leaders of more than 20 other mafia factions in the country. The great innovator Luciano explained his concepts for avoiding intrafamily and interfamily mob wars and for establishing lasting prosperity. He accepted as pragmatic Maranzano's organizational structure of crews performing the bulk of the work for the families, but added a wrinkle for the hierarchies. Besides a sotto capo, an underboss, each family regime or administration would have a consigliere, a skilled counselor or diplomat, to iron out problems inside the family and to resolve feuds with other borgatas. Luciano saw the practical wisdom of the Sicilian traditional reliance on omerta, absolute loyalty to the family, and many of the other rules and security measures that Maranzano had suggested to prevent penetration by law enforcement agents. These behavioral standards would serve as the Mafia's sacred code, its Ten Commandments. Without discussion or debate, it was universally understood by the bosses that membership throughout the country would be open only to men whose parents were both from Sicily or southern Italy. Italian heritage of only one parent would be insufficient for acceptance into a family. Bloodlines were critical factors for determining trustworthiness and for acceptance as a man of honor. The size of each family was fixed at the number of made men it had at that time, with replacements allowed only for dead members. Freezing the strength of each borgata was intended to prevent surreptitious expansions to dominate other families and possibly ignite territorial conflicts. Limiting membership also was seen as a business-like means of selecting the best and most competent candidates. Luciano made it clear that mafia membership was a lifetime obligation. There were no provisions for resignation or early retirement. The only way out is in a box, Bucky emphasized. While not a written document, the code illuminated the mafia's fundamental guiding principle. The survival of each family and the combined national mafia overshadowed the needs and safety of the individual mafioso. Every family was therefore obligated to maintain the organizational viability that would withstand any assault by law enforcement. The purpose of the code was to enable a family to continue functioning efficiently, even if the boss or other hierarchs were removed. The organization would be supreme, its parts replaceable. Luciano unveiled one more idea, his most striking innovation without precedent in the Sicilian Mafia or among Americanized gangsters. It was the creation of the Commission, the equivalent of a national board of directors that would establish general policies and regulations for all families in the country and would settle territorial and other disputes that might arise. The Commission would be the vital link between families throughout the nation, 
ensuring cooperation and harmony on joint criminal ventures. It would be analogous to an underworld Supreme Court, whose primary function was to prevent warfare while recognizing the sovereignty of the individual groups. Luciano and Bonanno originally wanted to name the new body the Committee for Peace, after its main purpose. But younger, American-reared mafiosi found the name too difficult to pronounce in Italian or Sicilian. Clearly defining New York's keystone position in the Mafia's national pecking order, Luciano gave representation on the commission to all five New York families. Other members of the new body would come from Chicago and Buffalo, with the proviso that more families could be added if necessary. Chicago's selection was an obvious recognition of Capone and his gang's strength, wealth, and domination of numerous rackets in the Midwest. The boss of the Buffalo family was Stefano Magadino, another immigrant from Castellamare del Golfo. Magadino was highly respected and feared because he was a cousin of Joe Bonanno and had business ties to mafia organizations in the Midwest and in Canada. Luciano surprised the Underworld Convention by insisting that each family on the commission have a single vote, with all decisions determined by the majority. His successes in New York had elevated him into a position of unrivaled national importance, and there was little doubt that among the nation's mafia bosses, he was first among equals. There would have been no opposition if Charlie Lucky had nominated himself as the first capo di tutti capi, boss of bosses. But Luciano realized that the bloodshed in the previous decade as families fought for dominance and underworld monopolies, climaxed by the Castellamarese War, had demonstrated the futility of attempts to impose a supreme leader. Martin A. Gosh, a Hollywood movie producer, claimed that 30 years after the Chicago conclave, Luciano reminisced about it with him in preparation for a proposed film version of Luciano's life. Gosh asserted that Luciano summarized his main purpose for the meeting with this colorful quote. I explained to him that all the war horse shit was out. I explained to him we was in a business that had to keep moving without explosions every two minutes. Knocking guys off just because they come from a different part of Sicily, that kind of crap was giving us a bad name and we couldn't operate until it stopped. Although the substance of Gosh's conversations with Luciano was never documented elsewhere, the quotation matched accounts that investigators dug up of Luciano's goals at the session in Chicago. Cosa Nostra experts agree that all of Luciano's remodeling proposals were accepted by the nation's mob families. Luciano's game plan clearly established that the American Borgatas would never be subsidiaries or satellites of the Sicilian Mafia. Although drawing on Sicilian traditions, especially Omerta, Americans' independent mafiosi were adapting themselves to the unique social and cultural forces that existed on their continent. The Chicago secret meeting reportedly ended at the Blackstone Hotel, with Al Capone hosting a feast where the delegates, acting as if they were at a jazz-era orgy, made merry enjoying the favors of a plethora of prostitutes. Without the awareness of the nation's vast law enforcement apparatus, in 1931, an American mafia had been custom-designed for efficient plunder, and New York 
was its epicenter. Five dirty thirties. Dirty thirties. For millions of Americans, the 1930s was the paradigm of hard times, the decade of the Great Depression. Justifiably known as the Dirty Thirties, it was an era clouded by unprecedented economic impoverishment, bank failures, shuttered factories, violent strikes, abandoned farms, homeless wanderers, bread lines, and soup kitchens. At the nadir of crisis in 1931, about 15 million people, almost 25% of the nation's workforce, were unemployed. The newly hatched mafia families, however, had no financial worries. The decade was the onset of unparalleled prosperity and cooperation that would extend far into the century. At the 1931 Chicago conclave of top mobsters, Lucky Luciano, the Mafia's visionary criminal genius, installed the organizational foundations that each of the score of existing Borgatas used to construct networks of illicit enterprises. Joe Bonanno, one of the bosses present at the creation of the modern American Mafia, was gratified by the long period of serenity that Luciano's grand scheme inaugurated. For nearly a 30-year period after the Castello Marese War, no internal squabbles marred the unity of our family. And no outside interference threatened the family or me, Bonanno marveled in his autobiography. Luciano's managerial revolution was intended to build bulwarks that would protect and insulate himself and the other bosses from implication in the transgressions committed by their families. Thereby, each chieftain or godfather would reap the profits from his family's criminal activities without risking indictment or imprisonment. Ironically, while Luciano's blueprint safeguarded most of his fellow bosses, he was the only New York mobster of his era to suffer a long prison sentence. Prohibition had been the catalyst for transforming the neighborhood gangs of the 1920s into smoothly run regional and national criminal corporations. Men like Luciano, Bonanno, and Duchese began as small-time hoodlums and graduated as underworld leviathans. Bootlegging gave them on-the-job executive training in a dangerous environment. It taught them how to plan and run the intricate machinery necessary for producing and supplying huge quantities of beer and whiskey. Still in their 20s and 30s, this new breed of mafiosi became expert at marshalling small armies of smugglers, truckers, cargo handlers, and gunmen. The young millionaire mobsters also became adept at laundering money to dodge tax evasion problems and learned how to bribe and manipulate political and police contacts to forestall law enforcement headaches. The Chicago meeting was a success. A power structure was in place. The nation's mafia leaders tacitly agreed to assemble every five years at a national crime forum much like a political party convention or a religious synod, to fraternize and review mutual concerns. Within the new Luciano and Bonanno families, their ranks had enlarged as a byproduct of the Castella Marese War, 
and the need for reinforcements in a costly campaign. While the Luciano Plan and the Commission united all of the country's borgatas and generally recognized rules and concepts, there were regional distinctions about membership. Joe Bonanno refused to subscribe to the idea of his borgata as a melting pot for all Italians. Only men of full Sicilian heritage, he insisted, could be faithful to Cosa Nostra culture and obligations. None of the families would permit the utterance of the name Mafia to identify their organizations. The New York families adopted Cosa Nostra, the Mafia code name in Sicily. Chicago called itself The Outfit. Buffalo chose The Arm. Others, especially in New England, preferred the neutral sounding The Office. Eventually, among mafiosi, the most popular mode for identifying a made man was the simple expression, he's connected. As the gangsters dispersed from Chicago, most of them realized that prohibition, the lush money machine, was on its deathbed. A majority of the public and most politicians wanted to rescind the law as unenforceable, unpopular, and a corrupted influence on law enforcement agencies. The worsening depression provided another anti-prohibition argument for the new administration in 1933 of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Supporters of repeal contended that it would revive the legitimate alcohol industry and generate thousands of new jobs. In December 1933, the 21st Amendment to the Constitution was adopted, repealing the 18th Amendment that had outlawed the production and sale of alcoholic beverages. On the first night that the 13-year dry spell ended, in New York, tens of thousands of revelers poured into Times Square in a spontaneous celebration. The huge throngs required the emergency mustering of almost the entire city police force of 20,000 officers for crowd control. The five New York Mafia families were prepared for the cosmic change. Prohibition had enriched them so handsomely that they had sufficient startup money and muscle to bankroll new rackets and crimes, or to simply take over existing ones from rival ethnic Irish and Jewish gangsters. As an example of the Mafia's financial resources, movie producer Martin Gosh said that Luciano told him that his gross take from bootlegging alone in 1925 was at least $12 million and that, after expenses, mainly for a small army of truck drivers and guards and bribes to law enforcement officials and agents, he cleared $4 million in profits. Prohibition was barely in its grave before the New York Mafia was feasting from a smorgasbord of new and expanded traditional crimes. Bookmaking, loan sharking, prostitution, narcotics trafficking, robberies, cargo hijackings, and the numbers game. Racket became the popular term for these new mafia endeavors. The use of racket as slang to describe an underworld activity can be traced back to 18th century England. Its exact derivation is unclear, though it might be related to alternate definitions of racket, a clamor, a social excitement, dissipation, or gaiety. In the mid and late 19th century, the term came into use as a raucous private party held by Irish-American gangs in New York. To subsidize their rackets, the gang members demanded or extorted contributions from merchants and individuals, 
whose property and lives would otherwise be endangered. Racketeer is a totally American invention, probably coined by a newspaper reporter to describe the innovative 1930s breed of mobsters. One shakedown the post-prohibition mafiosi borrowed from the defunct Black Hand was setting up phony security companies to protect businesses from arsonists and vandals who might damage their properties. Merchants and restaurateurs who declined to sign up with these spurious watchguard services often found their windows smashed or their premises ravaged by suspicious fires. Jewish gangsters in New York had invented the art of industrial racketeering in the garment center, which had a large percentage of Jewish workers and sweatshop proprietors. The Jewish thugs had been invited into the industry by both sides during fierce strikes in the 1920s. They worked as strike breakers for manufacturers and were employed by some unions as guerrillas to intimidate factory owners and scabs during organizational drives. When the confrontations ended, the gangsters who had worked illegally for both sides stayed on, gaining influence in the unions and in management associations. Their alliances with union leaders gave the Jewish racketeers the power to extract payoffs from owners by threatening work stoppages and unionization drives. Alternately, the unions paid them off by allowing mob-owned companies to operate non-union shops. Some mobsters muscled into companies as secret partners, getting payoffs from the principal owners in exchange for allowing them to operate non-union shops or for guaranteeing sweetheart labor contracts if they were unionized. Lucky Luciano, the only godfather with close ties to top Jewish gangsters during Prohibition, had little difficulty in absorbing Jewish garments and her rackets into his own dominion. Jewish hoods became junior partners and vassals of Luciano in one of the city's largest and most profitable industries. According to Joe Bonanno, who shunned mergers and deals with the Jewish underworld, Luciano in the mid-1950s was the dominant mob figure in the garment industry. Luciano had extensive interests in the clothing industry, especially in the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union, Bonanno wrote later. Charlie Lucky offered to place Bonanno's men in important positions in the Amalgamated, which was the principal union involved in manufacturing men's and boys' clothing. Once empowered in the union, Bonanno, like Luciano, could control vital jobs, set union contractual terms, and share in kickbacks from the manufacturers. Luciano's offer was politely turned down because Bonanno did not want to be obligated to another family. The independent-minded Bonanno had another good reason to go it alone. He had his own connections to the other vital clothing industry union, the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union. Like the other New York bosses, Bonanno had numerous traditional criminal activities and new front enterprises to keep him busy and affluent. He had taken over a variety of legitimate businesses, three coat manufacturing companies, a trucking company, laundries, and cheese suppliers. There was also a Joe Bonanno funeral parlor in Brooklyn that was suspected of being used to secretly dispose of victims murdered by the family. The ingenious Bonanno was said to have used specially built two-tiered or double-decker coffins with a secret compartment under the recorded corpse that allowed two bodies to be buried simultaneously. Income from these fronts was a handy means for warding off tax audits and justifying his above-average lifestyle. 
Bonanno's underlying capitalist philosophy rested on a basic theory that guided him and other bosses. Eliminate all competition. One must remember that in the economic sphere, one of the objectives of a family was to set up monopolies as far as it was possible, he explained in a man of honor. In addition to the garment industry, the five mafia families used strong-arm tactics and their influence in unions to control and obtain kickbacks from stevedore companies on the Brooklyn waterfront, the Fulton Fish Market, the wholesale meat and produce markets in Manhattan and Brooklyn, construction and trucking companies, and hotels and restaurants. The Sicilian-Italian gangs even forced out Jewish racketeers from their pioneering roles in the $50 million a year kosher chicken business. New York's large Jewish population and its orthodox dietary rules guaranteed a steady demand for the interrelated poultry industry. The Jewish hoods were content with simple old-fashioned protection tactics. They engaged in small shakedowns of frightened and defenseless businessmen trying to keep their companies and their bodies intact. Inspired by Tommy Three Finger Brown Lucchese, the Mafia had more grandiose plans. Lucchese's gunmen pushed aside their Jewish counterparts and, in what would become a classic model for industrial racketeering, established a cartel among live chicken suppliers, wholesalers, and slaughtering companies. Lucchese formed a supposed trade group, the New York Live Poultry Chamber of Commerce and through a combination of subtle intimidation and promises of ample profits, forced most kosher chicken businesses to join. Prices were fixed to put an end to normal competition, and each company was assigned a share of the market. In return, the company paid a fee depending on gross sales to the Mafia Front Poultry Association. Lucchese and his helpmates, of course, took a hefty cut for establishing the cartel and preventing new companies from competing in New York. The companies that kicked back part of their profits to Lucchese simply passed along the crime tax through higher prices to their customers. Within the industries they controlled, from the garment center to the waterfront, the mafiosi profited further from illegal gambling and loan sharking rings that fleeced wage earners. No competition was allowed by the five families. Jewish and Irish gangsters, who had run their own powerful Prohibition-era gangs, offered little resistance to the Mafia's drive for absolute control. Even Meyer Lansky, the most influential Jewish gangster of his time in the 1930s and 40s, needed the approval of his Mafia partners for most of his projects. Lansky accompanied Luciano to Mafia conventions, but was never allowed to sit in on discussions. Before the Mafia takeover, the undisputed Jewish criminal virtuoso of the 1920s was Arnold Rothstein. His omnibus activities included international bootlegging, labor racketeering, stock frauds, fencing stolen diamonds and bonds, narcotics trafficking, and gambling schemes. Rothstein's legendary coup was engineering the Black Sox scandal by fixing the 1919 Baseball World Series, in which the heavily favored Chicago White Sox were defeated by the Cincinnati Reds. Known along Broadway as The Brain and The Big Bankroll, Rothstein was an unthreatening-looking figure, soft-spoken, and a spiffy dresser. 
his authority was enforced by an entourage of brutal henchmen, and he tutored a crop of future Jewish and Italian underworld stars, including Lansky and Luciano. The charismatic Rothstein is believed to have been the inspiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald's gangster, Meyer Wolfshine, in The Great Gatsby. Whatever obstacles Rothstein might have created to the Mafia's takeover of New York rackets were eliminated before Prohibition ended. On the night of November 4, 1928, he was found staggering on a sidewalk in midtown Manhattan, shot in the stomach. Rothstein survived two days, but, true to his own code of omerta, refused to identify the shooter or the motive. I'm not talking to you, a detective quoted him as saying from his hospital deathbed. You stick to your trade. I'll stick to mine. He was dead at age 46. George Wolf, a Jewish lawyer in New York who represented Cosa Nostra and Jewish gangsters in the 1930s and 40s, had a close-up view of the new ethnic underworld relationships. The two groups have always worked in surprisingly good harmony, Wolf commented, the Italians respecting the Jews for their financial brains, and the Jews preferring to stay quietly behind the scenes and let the Italians use the muscle needed. Mafia strength stemmed partly from the ultimate organized crime weapon, murder. At the 1931 Chicago meeting, the bosses figuratively set in concrete the rule that only mafiosi could kill mafiosi. And while they could kill outsiders, other criminals would face death for even threatening a made man. A Jewish racketeer, Michael Hellerman, warned of the danger in challenging mafia authority in matters of money. Jews, outsiders, wind up on the short end of any sit-down Sheridan run by the Mafia, he grumbled. Somehow, we always wound up paying, even when we were right. During Prohibition, Irish gangsters dominated many sections of New York. Their most powerful and ruthless icon was Oney Madden. Madden began his career as a predatory gunman hijacker in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood on Manhattan's rough west side. His Prohibition-era escapades glamorized him as a celebrity millionaire with stakes in two dozen nightclubs, including the acclaimed Cotton Club in Harlem. Madden's reputation for revenge and craftiness and his political influence at City Hall were so potent that even the Italian gangs stayed out of his territory. But the death of Prohibition and the rise of the Mafia persuaded Madden that he could no longer survive or compete in any sphere with the Italian gangs. In 1933, the 40-year-old Madden announced that he was retiring from New York, relocating south to Hot Springs, Arkansas. At that time, Hot Springs, a city famed for its compliant and corrupt police and public officials, was a refuge for nonviolent criminals. After his fierce battles in New York, Madden found the ambiance in Hot Springs easy pickings. He became that city's illegal gambling monarch. The Mafia had similar post-prohibition successes against their former Irish and Jewish rivals in other cities. Sizable Irish crews in Chicago and Boston, and Jewish contingents in Detroit, the Purple Gang, and Philadelphia faced two choices. They were either whacked or induced to become hired hands for specific crimes, or allowed to work as compliant bookies paying the Mafia protection money. 
While the New York families were solidifying their organizations in the early 1930s, law enforcement efforts against them were at best haphazard.